of the rings there is this very powerful man called Denethor who is the steward of a mighty kingdom called Gondor and he has in his possession a thing called a Pelantia stone um, and what happens with that stone is that as he looks into it he's able to see what is going on around in his kingdom without actually having to be there so it's a little bit like what we would have today with a TV watching CNN news or hitting the BBC website, whatever it is, we get to see what's going on around the world. But, but what Denethor doesn't realize is that his arch enemy, Sauron, is actually controlling what he can see. So he can't see the whole picture. He only sees certain things. And it's the same for us today, isn't it? The internet, what we see on the news, is not necessarily it's ultimately controlled by God but Satan has permission to put on what he wants us to see and so the terrible thing for Denethor is that he ends up being driven to the absolute pit of despair and he commits suicide <laughs> um, I wasn't sure if that was in my ears or if it's in everybody's ears as well and so the question that we ask ourselves today is is what is it that we see in the world as we look around us. And when I hit the BBC website on, uh, on Friday, this is what I saw. And then I started reading. And I'm just going to quote directly from the article. More than 20,000 people are now known to have been killed in Monday's earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Though the UN warns that the disaster's full extent is still unclear. Rescuers are still searching the rubble for survivors. Can you imagine? That'll be almost a week now. Um, but hopes are fading more than four days since the first quake. This was on Friday. Freezing conditions threaten the lives of thousands of survivors who are now without shelter, water and food. You survived the earthquake, but are you going to survive the aftermath of the earthquake? Turkey's president called the quake the disaster of the century. I, I thought this was significant. A major international relief effort is gathering pace on Thursday, the World Bank pledged 1.78 billion. If that's what they're pledging to try and put things right, can you imagine the value of the damage that has been done in that earthquake? And so we, we look around at the world that surrounds us, and I think a lot of us look a lot closer to home, obviously, as well. We're looking at things that are happening in our own lives. And we need to ask ourselves, do we have a correct perspective on what we're seeing. Do we see things fitting into the overall picture or has the enemy in some way selected what it is that we can see and is trying to stop us from seeing the overall picture? And so the key to answering these questions, the key to seeing the overall picture is what the writer to the Hebrews is going to talk about today. And he's going to talk about three things that he saw. He saw paradise, he saw paradise lost in the present, and then he cast his mind forward to paradise regained. So please just turn to Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9. That's where we are today. Just remembering that the first chapter of Hebrews was all about Jesus in his heavenly position. The Jewish people were, the Jewish Christians were tempted to go back to the synagogue, to go back to valuing the things that they'd valued before at the expense of Jesus. And so he wants to create this picture of just 
how absolutely amazing Jesus is. So he looks at his position and his status and his power in heaven. And then at the end of it, remember, he gave that warning, which we listened to two weeks ago, which is don't drift away from what Jesus has said. This word of salvation that he has given us, that God has given us through Jesus. And then today, he continues showing that Jesus is key to our faith. And the way that he does it is he starts shifting his focus from Jesus in heaven, his heavenly position, to his earthly ministry. And so this section that we're going to be looking at today is a transition from his heavenly position to his earthly ministry because obviously what he did here on earth is just mind-blowing and we need to concentrate on that. So let's have a look at verse 5 and I'm just going to read down through to the end of verse 9. He says here, He has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. Isn't that mysterious? There's a world to come. And he's been talking about it in chapter 1. But someone somewhere has testified, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. And then he elaborates on this quotation that he's given us, which is from Psalm chapter 8. And he says, For in subjecting everything to him, mankind, he left nothing that is not subjected to him, mankind. Looking back into the past. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. This is God's word. So let's, let's look back at what he saw in the past. Those verses, verses 6 to 8, are quoted directly from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Back in the day when Jesus was around, and the, the, the Jewish teachers had recognized that there was a need for the Old Testament to be translated into Greek so that more people could read it. There were actually a lot of Greek-speaking Jews who wouldn't necessarily be able to read the Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic. And so he quotes directly from that, um, specifically from Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. And Psalm 8 is all about the majesty of God. How do we know that? Well, when you look at Psalm 8, if you, and you, I would encourage you to go back and look at it during the week. The first verse starts like this. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then the last verse of the psalm, when King David wrote this, he said the same thing. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's using that structure and that device to tell us that God is majestic. But then he goes on to explain that God manifests his majesty in a peculiar way. And so the psalm is broken up into two parts. In the first part, he talks about how God will actually overcome the work of Satan through the words and the praises of children. Now, we can't necessarily go into that now, but isn't it amazing that God could use children to overcome his enemies 
That's part of the peculiar majesty of God. He uses weak things in order to do amazing things. And then in the second part of the psalm, which is the one that is quoted in today's passage, he talks about humans. So let's have a look at that. He says, When I look at your heavens, talking about creation, the work of your fingers. Isn't that amazing? That God created all of this. He didn't have to put a huge amount of effort into it. It was the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars. So remarkable. And he set them in place. It was his mere finger work that he did this. And then he contrasts the majesty and the power of God with the frailty of human beings. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet, contrary to expectation, I mean, we are just nothing when you compare us to the universe, let alone the God who created the universe, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God is mindful of us. Do you, are you aware of that in the midst of whatever your trial that you're going through at the moment? That God is mindful of you? That he cares for you? So then he goes on and he says, you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And that was the way things were intended in the first place. The Hebrews um, that the writer is writing to Jewish Christians would have known that that was how God set things up with Adam and Eve in the garden. There was heaven, which was God's space. And then in the middle of heaven, there was creation, our space, man's space. There was an overlap between God's space and man's space, which meant that God was living with us in our space. The whole of the universe was created like a temple where God could be worshipped and where he could live with human beings. Of course, he went way beyond the scope of the universe, but he could also be there with human beings. It's a beautiful thought. And then what he did was he said to Adam and Eve, I want you to have dominion over your space, over creation. And, of course, we see that because that's what he said in Genesis 1.28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so Adam and Eve started to have dominion. They started to rule over their space, under God, of course, managing it in a way that would please God. And that's why Adam gave names to all the animals, isn't it? I mean, God could have told him, well, this is this and this is this and this is that. Um, but getting the names of the animals meant that he was getting to know them, he was studying them. What a wonderful time I think he must have had when I mean, he gave names to all the animals. What should we call this? What should we call that? It was part of his dominion. And of course, when that happened, folks, there was heaven on earth. He was living, Adam and Eve were living in paradise. They were ruling as God's representatives. And of course, the author to Hebrews reinforces that because after the quotation, he goes on to say, and everything was subjected under his feet, 
For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. However, folks, that's how it was, isn't it? That was the paradise that was given to mankind. But how is it now? What is the current situation? I think we all know it far too clearly, don't we? Adam and, I, and Eve were given this paradise, but they lost it. So let's have a look at verse 8. God has subjected everything under their feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subjected. Then there is this very, very pregnant phrase. As it is. As it is, we do not see everything subjected to him anymore. And isn't that the case? I mean, we have, as human beings, because we still carry the image of God, a certain amount of control and dominion over creation. But it's, it's not complete, is it? I mean, there are elephants trampling on human beings, earthquakes crush human beings, crocodiles eat them. There are little mosquitoes that kill millions of people every, every year. And the reason why all of that happened is because Adam, Adam said, I actually want to, to control all of this the way I want to do it. I don't want God telling me how to do it. And so Adam and Eve staged a rebellion against God. And because they rebelled against him, that's when death and sin and all of the mess that we see Paradise lost. But there is hope. Just have a look there at verse 8. I think it should still be there on your screen. It says, as it is, doesn't say we do not see everything subjected to him. It says, as it is, we do not yet. That little word, <laughs> so significant. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. Let's go back to verse 5 right there at the start of today's passage. It says, For he is not subjected to the angels, the world to come. So now he's starting to, to realize that there is more than what we see now. There is a world to come. And he's already been talking about it. So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, just look back to the end of, of chapter 1, those lovely quotations about Jesus. When we see it there, we, we just see that the world, as it is, is going to perish. Can you see that at the end of chapter 1? Jesus is going to roll it up like a dirty shirt, I always like to think. It's going to be changed like clothing that is worn out and filthy. And when that happens, God will give Jesus his enemies as a footstool. The enemies of Christ will be utterly dealt with and destroyed. You see, at the moment, in the, in the now, God is waiting He's allowing the rebels to exist along with all the death and the suffering that it has brought. Why? Because he's giving them a chance to respond. He's giving them a chance to repent. But this doesn't mean that God isn't in control. But one day, he will destroy all of his enemies. Even though at the moment there is the presence of sin and death in the world, God is in control over those things. He is able to use those things to serve his purposes, but a time is coming when they will be completely removed. Won't that be wonderful? We just so look forward to it. Just a quick reminder, we need to just go back very briefly now to the argument that the writer to the Hebrews is following. It's always so important to follow the argument. 
the writer has been arguing that Jesus is superior to angels. And in verse 5, he says that the world to come will not be subjected to angels. The implication is that this is another reason why Jesus is superior. Because the world to come will be subjected to him and not to angels. In other words, he's saying to those Christian Jews, why would you want to go back to the synagogue where Jesus isn't valued, where he isn't recognized as the Son of God, as the Messiah? Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go back to the angels, which are rightly respected and revered, but they're nothing compared to Jesus, who is going to be in control of the whole universe and world that is to come. So, we were human beings. We were living in a paradise. The paradise was lost, but it is going to be regained. Let's look at that perspective. As it is at the moment, we do not see everything subjected to Jesus. But, but we do see Jesus. And this is so important for us to understand. And it's so important for us to figure out what it is that we're looking at. What is it that the Palantir Stone is revealing to you? What is it that the internet, what is it that your own mind, your own eyes, as you look at your own life, even closer to home, what is it that you're seeing? Are you seeing all of that relative to Jesus? Are you saying in your mind, yes, I do see this, but I see Jesus, but I see Jesus. What does it mean? What is it about Jesus that we need to see? Well, firstly, we need to see Jesus made lower than the angels. And this is the writer's way of saying that Jesus became a human being. It speaks of Jesus' incarnation. Up until now, the, the writer, as I said earlier, has concentrated on Jesus' heavenly position. Now he's going to start talking about his earthly ministry and what it is that is achieved through his earthly ministry. And obviously as we progress next week, Trevor is going to be talking more about that. But Jesus became a human being. He became lower than the angels. Which angel ever did that for us? Is there anything that has achieved what Jesus has achieved through becoming a human being? And let's look at what Christ intended to do. Because you can see it there. By becoming a human being, it says Jesus was made lower than the angels for a short time. And then it says so that. Now we know what the purpose of him being made lower than the angels is. So that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus died for us. But you might say, well, you know, that death that he tasted, surely we're all going to taste that. How, how is it that he was unique in tasting death for us? What aspect of death did he taste on our behalf that we wouldn't need to taste? Well, it's the fact that he died on the cross and he experienced an eternal separation from the Father. None of us have experienced that yet. Once Jesus returned, and once the final judgment happened, and he gets to decide who is going to be eternally separated from God, yes, then that'll happen. But up until now, it hasn't happened to anyone yet. But Jesus has tasted it. And he did it for us, so that we wouldn't have to taste it if we put our faith 
and our trust in Him. And that's why it, in, it includes grace. Do you see it says that by grace He might taste death for us. It is an unmerited gift. Every one of us deserved to taste that eternal separation from God. But by God's grace, He allowed Jesus to taste it on our behalf. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. But look at what else it says here. It says that he is crowned with glory and honor because he has suffered death. So here in Paradise Lost we see Jesus firstly as the one who left his heavenly position, became a man, tasted, tasted death for us. But we also see Jesus... And this is crucial. We see him as the one crowned with glory and honor as well. Earlier in the series, we said that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That was a position of extreme authority and power. Let's just refresh our memories. Hebrews 1.3, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He's doing that at the moment. He's sustaining what is going on in the universe. Even though there is death and destruction, he's in control of it. He's sustaining, he's managing it. And then it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That, that was Jesus being inaugurated as king. And this means that in the presence, Jesus is governing the world and doing it even though sin and evil and death are present in the world. But as we've said, the world that we know will perish. And Jesus is going to roll it up like a dirty shirt. It's going to be changed like filthy jeans. And when that happens, God will give Jesus his enemies as a footstool under his feet. The enemies of Jesus death, sickness. It says in Revelations there will be no more crying. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more war. All of these things will be utterly dealt with and destroyed and we need to keep that in mind. What is it that we're seeing? We need to keep that in mind as we look at the world around us. Is there evidence to, to back up what I'm saying here in the New Testament? Well, just look at what the Apostle Paul said. Look at how he put it in 1 Corinthians 15. 20 to 27a. Let's just read this through slowly and let's just soak it up. But as it is, Jesus has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, Afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. At the moment he is reigning, the time is coming when all his enemies will be under his feet. And of course, the last enemy to be abolished will be death. And then we have this quotation of Psalm 8 again. For God has put everything under his feet. So let's just have a look. I, I think it should be underlined there. Oh, it's not. For God has put everything under his feet. That last verse there 
It's Psalm 8, verse 6, quoted again. Now, when Psalm 8 was originally written, it was seen as applying to human beings. But it also had a prophetic dimension to it because it also saw the ultimate human being, Jesus Christ, as being the fulfillment of this in the future. Something else to notice. Death came through Adam. Do you see it there in verse 21? It says, For since death came through a man, referring to Adam, so all those who are in Adam, verse 22, those who are in Adam will die. But, on the other hand, resurrection comes through Jesus. Do you see it there in verse 21? The resurrection of the dead also comes through one man. So Adam is our representative. All who are in Adam will die. But Jesus as our representative, if we put our faith and our trust in him, we will not die. So all of those who are in Christ will be made alive. Just a little note here. Verse 22 is sometimes taken out of con context. So let's just look at it. Um, all also in Christ, all will be made alive. So it can be easy to think that that refers to all of mankind. But we need to modify it with what it says further on in verse 23, where it says, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So it's not everybody, it's those who belong to Christ. We can either be in Adam or we can be in Christ. Now, We've seen that one psalm, when Psalm 8 was written, and folks, we're building up to a climax here because this is the part that just blows my mind away. It's talking about God ruling his creation. Remember it, in Psalm 8, in the beginning, God ruling the creation through humans, but we messed up the job. And we also see that the New Testament writers saw it as um, a prophecy about Jesus at the end of time being the one who rules the universe. But the question is, will that dominion that we had in the beginning, will it come back to us? Will it be restored to us? Just look at the end of chapter 1 of, the, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul is praying here that the Christians there in Ephesus would know the full extent of his hope and uh, of the hope that we have and the inheritance that we have and the power that we have. And then Psalm 8 crops up again, a quotation of it in verse 22 and 23. He says, And he put all things under his feet, talking about Jesus, and gave him his head over all things. Now this is significant. To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus has been given dominion. Everything has been placed underneath his feet. He is the head. We are his body. How does the head rule, if it's a king? <laughs> it rules through the body. So once again, our dominion will be restored in the new heaven and in the new earth. Revelation 3.21 says, To the one who conquers... I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus, and it is a promise to us that one day, can you, can you imagine it? We are going to sit with him 
on his throne. And, it, and then it con- he continues to say, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's going to be restored again, folks. Paradise will be restored. We will be under Jesus. He will be our king, but he will rule through us. And then Paul's writing to Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And remember, when he was writing that letter, that second letter to Timothy, he was, he was actually in, in the worst place, I think, that we find him in, 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 in the whole of his life. You can just see from the letter that he was just feeling so discouraged. He says to Timothy, please, when you come, remember to bring my coat. Because he was feeling cold. He was cold and, and it was damp in prison. But he writes to Timothy, he says, if we endure we will also reign with Christ. You see, we mustn't allow what Satan is trying to show us out of perspective to overcome us. We must persevere. We must endure. We must say to ourselves, whatever it is that we see, yes, I see this. Yes, this is real. Yes, it is true. But I see Jesus. Same for us as a church. Whatever it is, but we see Jesus. Jesus. We see Jesus reminds us that he became a human being. No angel did, ever did that for us. No other, no other power in the universe did that for us. Only Jesus did it. We see Jesus who became a human being and tasted death on our behalf. And we also see Jesus crowned with glory and honor with all of his enemies completely subdued under his feet, pointing forward to the time when he brings in the new heaven and the new earth, when we will sit with him on his throne. And so, folks, we're going to move on now to have the Lord's Supper together. And when we have the Lord's Supper, we, we keep in mind the fact that this is a picture of the wedding feast that we're going to have at the start of the new age. It's going to be that, that time when, when we celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb, when we have this amazing banquet. We'll all be in our resurrection bodies. It'll be lovely because we'll still be able to taste food. Um, but as Dave Eden always used to say, but it won't go onto our hips anymore. <laughs> so we'll be there enjoying the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that's what we remember as we share the Lord's Supper um, t- today.